Welcome to Revelation Warning, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Robert Thibodeau as he interviews prophecy experts from around the world as we discuss current events in relation to Bible prophecy. All of this is to give the world a final Revelation Warning. Now, here is your host with this week's guest, Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Revelation Warning Podcast. We are so blessed that you're joining us here today. Last time we had Scott Wright on, we were studying about the third church age. Now, I'll, I'm going to have Scott give a brief summary of what we discussed, but basically this is the age you know, where the Pope and the Catholic Church ruled by fear, intimidation, and brute force. And basically, Rome obtained its power and wealth through the god of force, if you want to get technical, which is Satan. But to talk more about this and to discuss the fourth age of the church, Scott Wright's back with us today. Scott's been teaching us about all the different ages of the church and the significant things that the Bible and history has to say about them. And he does this by helping us to understand that God's word readily gives us in order to to draw us closer to him. And he's also published a journal called God-Centered Concept Journal, Making God's Word My Ways. Scott has a goal of launching this series on a large scale, reaching churches and organizations with this curriculum that will change their churches from simple institutions into a movement. Amen. He's also a podcaster. He has a truly great podcast called The God-Centered Concept as well. And you need to listen and subscribe to this podcast because it truly is amazing. But more than that, he's also a huge student of end-time scenarios dealing with the book of the Revelation, the end of days, and the seven ages of the church. Now, I've asked him to come back on the program today as we continue a series of interviews discussing the church ages. Help me welcome back to the program, Scott Rice. Scott, thanks for coming back on as we continue this great discussion of all the different church ages. Well, Bob, thanks for having me on the show again, and glad to be back. Um, we obviously we've been working through, uh, this different time period of the third age of the church. And now we're going to be shifting into the fourth age of the church. Mm-hmm. Amen. And eventually we're going to work our way through all seven ages of the church. And then as I, uh, I sent you the other day, I've got some other things that we'll, uh, we'll dive into once we're done with yeah. the seven ages of the church. Amen. This is just laying the foundation. Praise God. Amen. So share with us a little bit about the third age of the church, just to tie together some things as we embark on a study of the fourth age of the church today. Well, the the thing we have to do is, is we have to look back. And, and the first guy I like to look at in that third age of the church, and he lived actually in the second age of the church and, and the third age of the church. The guy was over 100 years old when he died. He, he lived to be 105. And his name is Anthony of Egypt, known as Anthony the Great, uh, St. Anthony the Great. He was really the start of the monastic movement and the Desert Fathers, and he's known as the father of all monks. Mm. The reason what he did was so important, even to the fourth age of the church, is that he is the one that's going to establish how monks live. And that is going to infiltrate its way into the church, almost in, basically in how priests live and even nuns and, and all the, the clergy 
that's going to be part of the Western, uh, the Western Roman church. So we have to, we have to go back to him to understand that. And so not, not to speak about him would just, would be absolutely ignoring one of the most important acts. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Acts of church home and his simplistic life, his, the way he lived, the way that he believed and to teach others to believe and to how they should walk will infiltrate its way all the way through the foundations of the church. Amen. Amen. And with the third church age, was I right? Was saying, you know, where, well, let's, let me just ask it like this. Where did the power of the church Catholic church come from? So what happened was, is eventually when Constantine sees the vision and they, and they win the battle in three, and then the edict of Milan is, uh, released by Constantine in 317, that's kind of a, a starting point of shifting from the second to the third age of the church, but it will become official. The real, the real trigger event is going to happen in 337 with the baptism of Constantine, because what this is going to signify right before he dies is that now we have an emperor, and you said it in the last episode, who is kind of hailed as a god. Mm-hmm actually bowing before the real God amen, and saying that he had to be baptized. That is like that signature event that flips the ages of the church. And now what we have is we have the Roman, the power of the Roman empire that is now promoting Christianity. Now there'll, there'll still be some issues and there'll still be some things with persecution and all that, that still goes on. That's never going to totally end. But now it's becoming a thing to be a Christian versus before it was looked down upon and the people, I mean, you had to have a solid belief in Christ to be able to, to be able to continue that way, the, what they called the way at one point, and now it's called Christianity to really, to really walk in that you had to have a solid faith because you were going to be tested in every aspect, including your life. I mean, it was a life and death struggle for a lot of Christians during that time of the second age of the church, but the shifting takes a lot of that away and the persecution starts to die off. And now what we have is we have an age of the church that is now trying to settle. And a lot of people call it the political age of the church is trying to settle on its theology. Mm -hmm. And we get the accepted writings of the new Testament, which the canonization of scripture, which is huge that comes out of this age of the church, but also other theological point of views and trying to figure out what exactly is heresy and what exactly is sacred and what needs to be taught and what needs to be ridded, you know, what we need to rid ourselves of at that time, or the church needs to rid itself of to really follow the teachings of Christ. So, Coming up with the 27 sacred writings helps to do that mm-hmm. and helps to establish a theological base with, with which the church will move forward with into the fourth age. Well, now in, I in will, the, let me ask you this, you know, is there more than 27 writings that were in the Catholic Bible? Okay. So what you're probably referring to is the Apocrypha. All right. Okay. And that is in the old Testament. And really, that argument is between the church and Jewish scholars. 
Okay. Okay. So the New Testament itself, no. Okay. The New Testament was settled upon. And so the Catholic Church, as well as what will eventually become the Protestant movement, they will they will adhere to the same New Testament writings. Mm-hmm. It'll be the Old Testament. Okay, well, how did the the spread of Catholicism help or hinder the influence of the church in this time period? Well, obviously, and, and here's the way to think of this, and I'm glad you bring this up, is that in the for some reason in this new day and age, we have gotten to a point where we think that this was just the age of the Catholic Church. This was the age of the church because our beliefs that we have now came from this age. And so it wasn't until Martin Luther at the end of this fourth age of the church posts the 95 thesis, and then Britain breaks away from the Western Roman church in 1538 to make that official flip of the fourth to the fifth age, which we will talk about here in a minute, that that became what, so we have to, we have to think of the church in those first four ages and up until the very end of that fourth age, we, we have to think of that as one because so much of our belief system comes from this age. So there are certain things that we don't, that Protestants don't adhere to that they did, that the Catholic faith continued to embrace. But the basis of Christian belief still remains the same, and it's the entity of Jesus Christ and who he is. That is the the real foundation of both Protestant and Catholicism. That is still the central core belief is, is who Christ is. Okay, so you share that you know this church age, the fourth church age, is probably the most significant church age out of all of them. So why is that? What what makes this one more important than the first three and the last three? Okay, so saying that it's more important may not be the way I would exactly say it, but okay. it is the foundational culminating age of the church. And here's why I say that. And so, and it'll kind of actually lend uh, to what you just said. It'll actually promote that idea in some ways, because if you go through the first three ages of the church is kind of a buildup that puts the, the fourth age of the church as the church in power. Think of this, that church is going to be the church that's in power. Even if you start with the very first verse of this age of the church, which is verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. What happens at the very beginning of the writings of each ages of these churches? Jesus Christ is declared in a different way in each one. Amen. But the way that he's declared really is a highlight of what that age of the church is. I mean, think about it. If you describe somebody as the son of God, <laughs> that's a powerful statement. Yeah. Okay. And that's saying that he's it. I mean, this is it. This is the guy. And then if you also look at how they say this, whose eyes are like blazing fire, 
Does that sound timid to you? <laughs> not polished not really. bronze. Does that sound timid to you? That sounds foundational to me. That sounds yeah. powerful, which is exactly what this sage of the church was. It was the controlling power in Europe. And governments and the church were all intertwined, solidifying that power. Now, that is not to say that the fourth age of the church was some straight line of total dominance all the time. Yeah. If you go and look at the, and I have this here, and this was something I wanted to talk about. If you want to go and look at the map of Europe over that thousand years, the geopolitical boundaries change like you and I change our socks. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) there was, and, and not only that, but the spiritual beliefs of those different areas changed almost as much at times because that's such a large area of land. And there was a lot of turmoil between Christians and other Christians deciding on what to believe, who the local authorities should be, should be, should it be the clergy in Rome deciding that, or should it be the local governors and people who were in charge, whether it was Kings in those countries or, or whatever, deciding who those clergy people were that were teaching this stuff. And there's a lot of haggling in that that goes on throughout this age of the church. What also happens here, and I think this is very important, is that there is a lot of dissension and a lot of fighting and a lot of geopolitical shifting between Muslims and Christians during this time. Right. It goes on a lot. But I'm going to say this, and I think this is something to think about. You know, we, we talk about Jerusalem because it is such a centerpiece of the world and it's a centerpiece of the Bible. And we talked about it in the last stage of the church that in 363, they actually tried to, that Roman emperor tried to rebuild Jerusalem. And the day before they were going to start, there was a, there was earthquakes accompanied by balls of lightning and, and, that completely not only disrupted but destroyed a lot of the a lot of the things that they needed to rebuild it, and then finally that idea was just abandoned. But also during this fourth age of the church, and I believe God is acting in a way to promote His glory here, and and a lot of people aren't going to see it this way until they really step back and see it in the big picture. And these people, the people during this time, couldn't have seen this. There's just no way. But in between 636 and 638, the Byzantine Jerusalem, controlled by the Byzantine Byzantines, is now conquered by Arab armies and shifts from Christian to Islam. God was saying that this is not the time. Yeah. And you're trying to do this. Okay. You're trying to take this. And then eventually the temple could be rebuilt. So God just puts a, he just, he just puts his foot down and says, no. Amen. And when because Islam he also said that uh, that it remained that way until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. Exactly, and it and and even now it hadn't been totally fulfilled. So right. this puts a stop to that. All these attempts and all these different things that that Christians are now in power there, and and of course, you know, Christians would rather work with with people of Jewish faith 
than they would have Islam mm -hmm. at that time. Well, guess what? Now Islam has control of Jerusalem, and there is no biblical controlling entity, whether it's Jewish or Christian, controlling that area anymore. Right. So the chances of the temple being rebuilt are none at that time. Right. At that time. And I believe God acted in that way. And he, you know, he'll do that, even allow the enemies to come in to what he's trying to promote to get things the way he wants it. And yeah. that's what happens. And I believe that that is a part of this history right here that we have to step back and see it that way. I'm not saying that was fun for those people. I'm just saying it is what it is. God's glory outranks our life. And oh, we need man. to remember that. And a lot I believe of people, that's a lot of people ask something like, you know, it might say a statement like, well, you know, if, if God takes care of his people, why did he allow, you know, all these thousands of people to die millions of people over the centuries? Why did he allow them to die just because he didn't want the temple rebuilt at that time? Something like that. And, you know, that's would have gotten the, the glory. short. Yeah. Well, that's the short view of looking at things, because if you actually think about it, yeah, you know, it, it's tragic that you know a million people six million jews died during the holocaust why didn't god do something to protect his people but the thing is if they're still believers they didn't really die mm -hmm. you know i mean yeah the body died and it was tragic you know the torture and all that stuff that would take place but you know his people are still his people it's Amen. just they're transitioning from earth to heaven and, and exactly. you know, for believers, we have that hope because you know, scripture says Jesus tasted death for every person. Yep. He did. Well, that means you don't have to. <laughs> you know? you exactly. Don't have to taste it. When you yeah, we don't die, have to taste the second death. Right. When you die, that's just the end of this earthly existence and you transition immediately, you know, absent with the body present with the Lord, you know? Exactly. And, and, you know, so yeah, the, you know, by God putting the, the Muslims in charge of Jerusalem, making sure that there wouldn't be a forced rebuilding of the third temple until it was time. Yeah. Lots and lots of people died, you know, trying to make it happen on their own. But, you know, the thing is there's still believers that, and they're still God's people. He just transitioned them out of that environment and into his. But, you know, exactly. Anyway. And, and think about this. Right. Yeah, no problem. Christians can be in Christ, but not necessarily hearing his voice and trying to act in their own way. And sometimes God has to correct that. Yeah, absolutely. And he'll do whatever he has to do to correct it. Well, I don't see this as being any different. And and the problem is, 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 People in our in our natural sense, in and out again, and what we do. But the truth is, everything here is set up by God and for God and for His glory. Yeah, and He will correct whatever needs to be corrected to make it about His glory. Yep. Amen. Ultimately, our job here on Earth is to glorify His name. That's it. That is our ultimate purpose above all things else, things, all the other details, all these other pieces, when we're not glorifying God, and I can think about times in my own life when I have not, God has corrected me and rightfully so, 
And to not take such a view of things is to be, as you said, short-sighted and not seeing it the way God wants us to see it. We have to see it through his glorification. God gets the glory. And I believe that in this fourth age of the church, God works through this age in many different ways to eventually bring an end result that will bring him glory. There's a lot of things that come out of this age that does not bring him glory. And we're going to talk about those here in a minute. Yeah. And it's pretty ugly at times. I mean, it just flat out is ugly. And to not and to and to not see it that way is just seeing it in a some <laughs> illusion, I guess is the best yeah. word I want to use here. Yeah. But Amen. the bottom line is is that the end result of all this will be to God's glory. Everything is about God's glory. And when we don't see life that way, we run into short the short-sightedness that you just talked about, but we also run into the fact that it's it goes back to episode one of my podcast. Who's the owner? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Who are you giving the authority over to? God is the final authority. Period. There is no other answer, guys. There, if you're listening to this, there is no other answer. Whether we're studying the ages of the church or the end times, or we're studying discipleship. Or we're just teaching a non-believer what our faith is all about and leading them to salvation. At the end of this, it's all about the glorification of God. Even Jesus, the Son of God, who was God, glorified his Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. It was all to his glory. The Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer. He did not he wanted the cup taken away, but he said, No, not my will, but thy will be done. God's will. He was willing to die to simply glorify his father in heaven. Amen. Amen. So we need to we need to remember that when we're studying this. And I think that's such an important aspect. Something you you said right there just sparked something in my mind about the, you know, where we've been talking about the third temple, but think about the first temple. You know, David wanted to build God a temple. God said no. But he allowed Solomon to build it. You know, and then that one naturally got destroyed. And then over the course of time, it just laid in ruins until God said, okay, now rebuild it. So there's your second temple. Yep. And Jesus said, you see this? Think that's fascinating? Wait till it's tore down again, and they're like, "Ha ha ha!" Happened. <laughs> yep. God would never allow that to happen. You know, down it went, and they said, "Well, let's build the third one." And that's where you said, "God, this time, God said, no, you're not going to build it. Nope, not time yet." You know, I mean, you know, at first, you know, think David of the Tower of Babel. Yeah, go back to exactly. the Tower of Babel. Yeah. It was exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, and when God said, "Yes, you can build it." Everything went along. I mean, he had, you know, look at Moses in the tabernacle. You know, these guys are dwelling out in the desert. There's not many resources in the desert. (laughs) I don't care where you live at. But he put, you know, gave godly wisdom to all these people. They could sew gold threads into, you know, make, I mean, he said, build this and make it happen. And they did it. And when people tried to come against it, you know, sometimes the ground would open up and swallow them up whole. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
because <laughs> he wanted it done. But Amen. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything you're saying just goes right. When God says yes, it's yes. And when God says no, it's no. You can try and force your way, and it's not going to happen, you know. And, uh, so, hey, man, yeah, that's, that's, that's good stuff there. And, and so how does the exactly. fourth age of the church tie into what we're looking at now in the end times, or does it? Well, I think, first of all, we just talked about Jerusalem, and I think that's a big deal um, because that will absolutely funnel into what what's going on now because it won't be until 1948 mm-hmm. when Harry Truman signs the document in May of 1948 that Israel becomes a nation again. And then, of course, in 1967, they, with their military, they retake the old part of Jerusalem. And then in 1970, in August of 1970, they will politically secure Jerusalem for themselves. Now, they still haven't rebuilt the temple, but now it's a lot closer, and you know that because of those events. Those won't happen until the seventh age of the church. And in the fourth age of the church, it's put a stop to. So I think that's very significant. I think number two, and I think this is really important, is that There is not only these wars going on between the Byzantines, obviously incorporating the Holy Roman Church as well, and the Arabs, but there is a lot of back and forth between the East and the West part of the church at this time. Uh, Culminating in 1054, the Great Schism of 1054, that is huge. Because when those split, it also starts to erode some of the power. Mm, And some of this is done over this fact, okay? And this this would go back and forth for a while, is that it's all about clergy marrying, whether they could be married or not. That becomes a big deal. And there's other things as well. And there's lots of little schisms and back and forths. But here's what's going to happen. Also, during this time, eventually, we're going to have the Crusades. Yeah. And those, again, them trying to take Jerusalem, take the Holy Land, again, trying to force their way in against God's timing. It doesn't turn out well in the end. No. It turns into something that's ugly and a lot of people think it's a black mark on christ i'm like no it's a black mark on the church mm-hmm. on the western roman church it's not a black mark on christ amen amen they weren't successful for one thing yeah ultimately they will not be successful and it will increase persecution of christians as a result in no way, shape, or form does the Crusades do anything to put a black mark on Christ, but it does on the church itself. Amen. Amen. And this is a very dark period of the church. But here's also, I believe God. Mm -hmm. I was was just going to ask you, are we as individuals, are we destined to repeat these church ages, but on a smaller scale in our own life? They, you know, you can look at the patterns and absolutely you can see this. Yeah. I mean, if you're reading 
the about the fourth age of the church, if you're actually reading the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, it talks about the Jezebelian spirit, okay? Mm-hmm. It says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Well, there was a lot of sexual immorality going on with high-ranking officials, royalty, and clergy during this time. And there would be a lot of backlash from that. There would be popes that would come in and try to clean it up, and then it would happen again. And it went back and forth, and it was ugly. So it also went on with royalty who was claiming Christ, but yet they would have multiple partners. Yeah. Having children with them, we know that that happened. This was not a pretty time. And think about this. Think about how a lot of women were probably being used by the enemy, the devil, to try to get with these men and actually control them and how Mm -hmm. they thought. Yeah. Like that's never happened before. And I'm being sarcastic (laughs) here, obviously. But this was going on and it was a huge thing. And guess what? Jesus predicted that it would be a huge thing. Yeah, amen. And it's not only immorality of that. It says to eat food sacrificed to idols. So imagine how they were royalty and clergy were gaining that food. Mm-hmm. You know, think of all the different ways that they could have been doing that. Think of feudalism. It really gets set in stone during this time. And I mean, feudalism was just a form of slavery. Yeah, it really was. Go read about it. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. Honestly, slavery in this country, the idealism of that came really from feudalism mm. in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the those peasants may not have had shackles and they may not have been called slaves, but they had no choice. Right. Exactly. That's slavery. That's yep. bondage. They either did what they were told or they either were killed or they starved to death. Mm-hmm. And that happened. That was going on a lot. So we can't, we, we have to, to me, a lot of the roots of the of modern slavery in the United States came from feudalism. Yeah. Amen. It really did. And so that was another ugly part of all of this. Mm. And then it's funny how in verse 22, behold, I will cast her onto a bed of sickness. Well, let me tell you what else happens during this time. Hey folks, Pastor Bob here. I normally don't do this with the Revelation Warning Podcast because I want to maintain that continuity, but our discussion with Scott Wright in this interview, it is so in-depth and it went on for a, a long time. I mean, we just kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper. So the only way that, that I could see to, to make sure that you get all the value that you can out of this interview is by breaking it up into a couple episodes. All right. Now you need to come back for the very next episode because we're going to take it up right here and you do not want to miss what Scott Wright is about to say. I'm, I'm guaranteeing that right now. So till then, this pastor about remind you, be blessed in all that you do. You have been listening to Revelation Warning with Pastor Robert Thibodeau and his guest expert on Bible prophecy as it relates to current events. This podcast is not designed to invoke fear, but concern. Help us to make everyone aware that the soon return of Jesus is close at hand by clicking the like, subscribe, and then share buttons below. Share this episode with your loved ones, friends, and co-workers. 
For more information on our ministry, please visit podcasterforchrist.com. And be sure to come back next week for another episode of Revelation Warning.